Hey, um, we are in 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. If you need a Bible, we forgot to do this, but raise your hand. We'd love to get you one. We are teaching out of the ESV, 1 John chapter 1. It's not your typical Christmas passage, but you'll see it fits really well. 1 John 1. Um, while you're turning to 1 John 1, we're going to work our way through uh, John's insights on Jesus' coming. Uh, before we do that, I do just want to remind you, um, I think the greatest summary probably in the gospels of this day is when the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 verse 11 and they said what fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy for all people <laughs> listen to this good news great joy all people the word good news by the way is the gospel I love this the angel literally says don't fear I bring you the gospel that is the word don't fear the gospel is here. There's great joy. It's for everyone. Um, my hope today is that we obviously don't lose sight of why we're here, of what we're doing. Let me just say this. I know it's very easy for us. It's, it's typical to kind of walk through the classic Christmas texts. You know, maybe you've been reading, hopefully you've been reading this week, kind of preparing your heart for what the whole point of this is, but Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, they're kind of the classic Christmas passages. Uh, you know, you have obviously the shepherds and the angels and the wise men, and you kind of have the classic nativity scene. Um, my hope is to not necessarily look at that as much as I want to look at John, the friend of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when he wrote First John, he's an old man. And it's almost like here's this old man looking back at his life, looking back at the most important teachings of Jesus, looking back on how to follow Jesus, and John tells us, here's why Jesus came. And so I just want to really look at 1 John for that reason. It, it's so easy for us to kind of look at the details of the story, but miss the main point. God was basically saying, my priests didn't work, my prophets didn't work, I'm coming down. And as much as Christmas is beautiful, I mean, you think of this, it's basically God saying, you were so hopeless, I had to enter earth. This is the only way. We're so broken, we're so lost, that God's like, let me come and walk among you in order to save you. Merry Christmas, we're sinners, and we need Jesus, right? That is the point. And so my hope is just to see this from John's perspective. I mean, think about this again. I just want to like slow down because um, Christmas is the thing, you could say, that divides history from BC to AD. I mean, this is a big deal. We literally claim that God came to earth and walked among us, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, and he was full of grace and truth. And our hope, and my hope, is just as we would look at his word, it'd be so much more than the nativity scene or all the details. There's no room for them in the end. Those are great stories that we will look at, we need to look at, we should look at, but I don't want to lose the big point. Why did God come? Why did Jesus come? What was the point? Why was God like, uh, the only option here is option me, coming to earth and becoming like you? And so I, for us, um, it's just very easy to let this season fly by without just slowing down and saying, God, thank you so much that you came to earth. That was the only play. That's the only thing. And so I want to do this. Um, we're not going to read the text now because we're going to walk, walk through a few verses in 1 John. But I just want to encourage you guys, take a second. I mean, this will be over, service will be over before you know it, you'll be at home, it'll be Christmas morning before you know it. I just want to encourage you guys, take a second, why don't you just bow your head, close your eyes, and just say, God, speak to me fresh this morning. You know, this is a time where you can say, Lord, my, my eyes and my ears, my heart is open to hear from you. I'm ready to receive 
Maybe you need to pray a simple prayer like this. God, make this story brand new to me again. Let me hear it like I'm hearing it for the first time. So I want you to take a second. We'll be quiet. Ask the Lord to speak to you this morning. Father, um, we just ask that you, that you would be moving in this place. Lord, speak to us. We thank you that you are a God who comes to us, that you never left us, you've never forsaken us, you gave us your son, you've given us your spirit, that you are with us still to this day. You live and dwell in those who believe in you, in us. And Lord, we just need you. We ask that this would not just be some story of some events that took place a couple thousand years ago, but Lord, that this would be the life-transforming truth that God, that we thank you. We could never find you. We could never, we could never seek you out and find you, but you came to us and you made yourself known. And so Lord, I ask that you'd make that really clear to us on why, why. Speak to our hearts this morning in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, on Tuesday this week, my neighbor uh, came knocking on my door. Uh, love my neighbor. He's in his 70s. Uh, he told me I have the privilege to share this story. He actually told me to share this, but he knocked on my door. His name's Jeff. Jeff is an atheist. He comes over. We talk all the time. Uh, we talk, he just, you know, he gives me a hard time sometimes about being a Christian or pastor. We just mess around. We have a good relationship with each other. Jeff comes over, knocks on my door, and he's like, hey, I got a story. I'm like, oh, what's up, man? What happened? And he's like, so this week I was at the mall. He's, I'm not going to try to impersonate him. Uh, he's like, this week I was at the mall, and I'm sitting there, and he's like, I love to people watch. I'm at the Starbucks in the Boca Mall. You guys, if you know the Boca Mall, there's like this open area where the Starbucks is, and you can kind of see everything. He's like, I just love to go there and just watch people. I'm like, that's creepy, but okay, keep going. And uh, he's like, so I'm there. I'm sitting there and just watching people, and this young guy in his 20s comes up to me and says, hey, can I pray for you? And he goes, no, nah, I'm good. I talked to the guy this morning. I'm good. <laughs> and first of all, he did not, obviously. He's like, no, but I'm good. He's like, no, man, I, is there anything I can pray for you for? And he's like, did Josiah put you up to this? <laughs> and he's like, he literally says, Josiah from the Bible? <laughs> he's like, no, no, did Josiah put you up to this? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, he kept on, like giving it back and forth. He freaked him out and he just left. He's like, see, I don't let him pray for me. I don't I want prayer. He's like, so I'm just sitting there watching people talking and hanging out. And then this young girl in her 20s comes up to me and she's like, hey, can I pray for you? And he's like, so Josiah, where's Josiah? And he asked her, he goes, where's Josiah? And he said, he's like, stood up and he's looking around. He goes, where's Josiah? I know he put you up to this. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, sir. <laughs> and he's all paranoid and freaked out. And so I love this, by the way. I love that he's like paranoid that I'm sending people to him. So after church, we're all going to go to his door and knock on it. <laughs> hey, can I pray for you? No, but he's like, no, no. Like I, after a while, I really thought it was you and I'm looking for you. And he's like, and then I realized it wasn't you. And they thought I think I'm crazy. You mentioned this Josiah guy. I look like a paranoid. And He's like, and he's like, you know, but it's a good idea to pray for people. He's, he, this is what he called it. He's like, it's a great scam to ask people to pray for them. I'm like, scam? He's like, yeah, it's a great scam. You know, get them to your church. And I'm like, or, or they wanted to pray for you. <laughs> and he, so we're going to have this conversation. I'm like, Jeff, I love this, man. He's like, I'm like, maybe you think the Lord's like chasing after you. He's like, nah, it's just Christmas time, I, you know, and Baha booking left. Um, and based on that question of why are you here? Who sent you? What, what, what's the purpose of you being here? You know, another way to put it, I was thinking about this um, years ago, like 10 years ago, my in-laws uh, were in town and we went on a cruise and so it's my wife and I and her parents and we're on this cruise and, um, you know, I'm like 25 years old, I'm a youth pastor at the time and I see this young girl, I think she's like a freshman and she was in our youth group and when she saw me on this cruise, it was probably the greatest facial expression I've ever seen. She, was, she literally goes, ah, my youth pastor! And I don't know why, I was like, hey, hey! And I said her name. And I'm like, what's up? And she's like talking to young teenage girls with her. She's like, that's, that's my youth pastor. And she's kind of freaking out. And she's like, why are you here? 
I'm like, well, your parents sent me to keep an eye on you. And no. Um, <laughs> but she's talking to a girl. She's like, why are you here? And I'm like, just to have fun like you. She's like, uh. She was so terrified to see me. And I just thought it was hilarious to see that. And just that question, why are you here? Like the, the idea of someone's presence at times, and maybe you have like a boss or so, there's some sort of figure. You're like, why are you here? What's the purpose of your coming? And I don't know if we ask that question enough. So this idea of Christmas, it's, it's pretty if you think about it, without even saying a word, without there being a message from the angels or to Joseph or to Mary, this message communicates something. The very fact that God had to come down, that tells us something. And we should be going, uh, why are you here at Christmas from John's perspective and says, this is why Jesus came. Um, we probably should listen to the friend of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, as John said. We should probably hear why he said it. I love what one author said about this season. Uh, the author wrote, she wrote, the entire thrust of this season at the end of the church year, listen, is designed to bring us face to face with reality. Reality about sin and death, reality about the human race, reality about God. Something ultimate has entered our world. Something or someone that calls us to attention calls us out of our daily preoccupations and our routine points of view, that is what this season with its special biblical readings is designed to reveal. It's designed to bring us face to face with ultimate reality, sin, hell, heaven, death, eternal life, face to face with God. So John says, here's why Jesus manifested, appeared, came, and so let's look. It's 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 through 4, but then focus on verse 2. Here's what John says. John's interesting, man, the way he starts off his writings. He just kind of gets to it. He starts again, right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, again, not the gospel of John, 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. Everyone say, Phaneros. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest, same word, to us. The life was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy... By the way, the New King James says it, and I think it's better. Most manuscripts say, so that your joy may be complete or may be full. All right, so here's what John's saying. John starts off right away, old man talking to the church. Imagine like his heart for the people, and he goes, listen, that which we've seen, that's what we've heard, we've touched, we've seen Jesus, we've hugged Jesus, we've been with Jesus, we've had a relationship with Jesus. This is not just some fable or story. Jesus, God, actually came to earth. That which was from the beginning, that which had no starting point, he is the starting point. He's saying we've actually seen him, and he took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we touched him, we looked at him. I love this because John right away is just saying, first of all, the story of Jesus is not just some story or myth that we try to tell ourselves to feel good, that God cares. No, there was a God who saw us desperate and broken and says, I need to come to you. And John's like, and we felt him. We heard him. We spent time with him. This really happened. He was there physically. He was there in every way possible. Our hands have handled it concerning the word of life. And I love how John, three different, a few different ways, he says Jesus is the word of life. He is life. He actually gives us eternal life. It actually says he is eternal life. Here's what John is saying. Jesus doesn't just give you life. He is life. This is amazing. I love this because Jesus doesn't just offer you 
like eternal life, even though you could say he does. He, he, he himself is eternal life. He says, you have him, you have life. He's life. He's the word of life. He's eternal life. He's life itself. What we've experienced, and imagine John writing this going, you know, it's what, it's what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15. He's like, there's been over 500 of us who saw Jesus post-resurrection. And these people, one by one, are giving their life for that truth. Like, yeah, I saw him too. And you can ask this person and that person. You can talk to them face to face. They'll all validate the same thing. 500 people have seen the same thing. They gave their life for that fact. Jesus is real. He died. He rose again. We saw him before he ascended. And the point John is saying is this is not just some cool fairy tale we tell ourselves to feel better. He's a real person who lived and died and was with us. And you too can have fellowship with him. Here's what, why this is amazing. John is not with, he's not with physically his friend Jesus. Jesus ascended. But he says what? We have fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus. And you too, he says in verse 3, you too can have the same fellowship. So here's the idea. Christmas means we can have fellowship with God. I know it sounds simple, but it's simply profound. We are saying God actually offers intimacy with us, a relationship with us. If you look at other religions, other Eastern religions, God is usually some like impersonal force, can't really get to know. Maybe it's an idea or concept. Maybe it's teachings you live by. He's saying not so with Christianity. The thing that makes Christianity incredibly unique is this idea of the incarnation, is that God walked among us. The thing that makes this really unique, we're not just saying, hey, God's in heaven saying, guys, man, this is so sad. I actually really care about you. Please trust me. God is actually an I took on flesh and dwelt among you. And John's like, yeah, I've seen that. I have fellowship still to this day with him and with the Father, and you too can have this fellowship with him. You too can have this relationship with him. My thing is, um, it's very easy for us to hear all the things, even believe all the right things, and still not have fellowship with God. It's so easy to be around all of this and still not walk with him or know him or just seek him and enjoy him. Just even if you're sitting at his feet quietly, like, Lord, I'm tired, but I'm just thankful that you are life. Would you give me that? Would you be that for me? You are my life. I want you to think about this little baby coming to earth and what a threat it was. It's crazy because all the songs we sing, everything we kind of think about, Jesus' arrival was a massive threat to like everyone and everything. When the wise men show up and they're like, hey, we heard that like the Messiah is born. We've seen his star. Like, huh? Herod's like, please tell me more. And when you find him, please tell me so I can go back and worship him. But he was, Jesus' birth was such a threat that it's believed that Herod uh, ended up murdering 144,000 babies. 144,000 babies because he's a threat to his life and his kingdom. I mean, we do this almost daily in America, sadly. But it's such a threat to him. He's like, I need to end all male babies' lives under this certain age. The point I'm bringing up is why Jesus' arrival is a threat to your life. You have to understand that. Christmas is beautiful, man. Christmas is amazing. But think about this. The point that God came to earth should, and it does, threaten your life and my life, meaning it threatens how we do life. It's basically saying status quo does not work and will not work. And it's a threat. Like, I want to do life my way. Mm. God coming to earth is saying, hey, your life, your way does not work. So I'm coming to give you and be life for you. And I think what's beautiful about that is, you know, it should threaten our life, our way of doing life. Like, if we look around, you guys, it's not working. The way we're doing things, it's not working. Whether it's us, whether it's uh, as a nation, as individuals, as a world, like our world systems, none of it's not working. 
meaning your way of life does not work. Yes, Jesus' arrival does threaten your way of life, but I would say this at the same time. If you embrace his life, it's completely worth it in every way. He gives you new life. He gives you new meaning. The, the, ha- the pursuit of happiness we have as individuals, we, we want to pursue happiness, you will never find it until you find joy in Jesus, meaning it'll always be a pursuit until you come to the conclusion that there's no pursuit of happiness that will actually satisfy. Only Jesus himself can bring me a satisfaction and joy that nothing else can. And that's why John writes, I'm writing these things so your joy can be complete. Here's what John is saying. Fellowship with Jesus is what will complete your joy. The thing you're in pursuit of right now, your way of doing life. I'll just do it my way. I'll use it. It's my money. It's my body. It's my whatever. I'll do it however I want. It will never lead to your joy. He's saying fellowship with God, exchanging your life for his life, the one who is eternal life, that is what will bring you fullness of joy. You've tried it your way. Why don't you try something else? I love that about Christmas. Hey, we've tried it for a few thousand. We've tried it man's way. God's like, let me, sh- let me show you how to do it. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to trade places with you. If you want to find your life, you must lose it. You want eternal life? Look to Jesus. John is basically saying, here is why he came. The life was manifested. Jesus came. He's like, and I'm writing this so your joy can be complete. I would say this, if you've been trying to do your life your way and you're like, why isn't this working? That's probably why. I would, I would encourage you or submit the idea to you to give up your life in exchange for Jesus's life. That will lead to completion of joy. Does that mean absence of difficulties? Absolutely not. But an inner peace and joy that only Jesus can bring. Listen, why did Jesus come? To bring life, to offer us new life, to give us eternal life. Because in reality, he is life. And I believe you'll experience joy upon your belief and trust in Jesus. Amen? Listen, this is why Jesus came. You can have fellowship with God. You actually can. John's like, I'm writing this so you can know. We have it, and you too can have it. Number two, John brings to our attention. Uh, he says to bring forgiveness, to bring forgiveness. This is why Jesus came. Look at chapter three, verse five. Chapter three, verse five. John used the same word, same idea, this manifest, his appearing. Chapter three, verse five. If you would, just look at the verse. He says in verse 5, we'll kind of break it down to the context. He says, you know, that, uh, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Man, that is straight to the point. I love this. He goes, you know why he came. You know why he appeared. This is why Jesus came, to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So he starts off right away and says, um, listen, this sin thing. We don't like talking about sin. Sin's weird to us. We don't like, eh. I think as a culture, we don't want to like, no, that's just a different choice, a different lifestyle. That's just what they want to do. Jesus and, and John, they bring up this idea of sin again, going, no, no, no. Jesus came to earth to take away sin. This is why he appeared, to remove sins, to get rid of it. I love this. Um, there's this emphasis over and over again of Christmas and this idea, and we'll look at this in a second. But the whole point God is trying to say is, you didn't need like information. You didn't need a politician. What you needed was a savior. I, I think this idea that um, this should offend us. It should offend us. Jesus' arrival is basically saying, you're so helpless. I had to come. I had to save. I was your only option. There's a few different authors who say this, but I love how Max Lucado uh, wrote this. He says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. This is it. This was our greatest need. John says, guys, church, I'm this old man. You know why Jesus came. He came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
He's the only one who could take away sin because in him there was no sin. He's born of a virgin. He's the one who, in Adam all die, he doesn't come from Adam. In Christ, all are made alive. He's the only one who could fulfill this. He goes, you know this is why he came. And notice this, it's, it's so much more than even forgiveness. It's to cancel out sins. He says he came to remove sins. This is why he came. There's um, a lot of different words around the, the, the coming of Jesus' arrival. and all, uh, The words are all around the word savior to some extent or salvation. And if you go back like later today, let's say you want to read the, the, the coming of Jesus. You want to read about the birth of Jesus through uh, Zechariah or Simeon or all the different stories and narratives. I'll throw a few verses up here just so you can see this. This is what a few of them say about Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus in John 1, he said, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, when uh, the angel appeared to Joseph, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. His name needs to be Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. The, the name, Yeshua, that God will save. He will save his people. Uh, it says in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's song, he says, you've raised up a horn of salvation for us. In Luke 2, the angels, we read this, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior. In Luke uh, 2, verse 30, what is, uh, we see this. We see, for my eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon says. I've seen your salvation. Everything around the birth of Jesus is the Savior has come. We've needed this all along. Again, it's one of those things where uh, it's weird. I know it's Christmas. You're like, can't we just talk about nice things? But listen, we have this thing that plagues all of us, and that thing, this thing that plagues all of us is sin. I will say our greatest issue in the world is not social. The greatest issues in the world is it's not political. It's not racism. The greatest issue in the world is sin lies in the heart of every single person. Sin is in my heart. Sin is in your heart. The greatest issues, we try to tackle the issues through social ways when the only way is a spiritual way. When God's like, no, sin dwells in the heart of everyone. And I'm gonna, if you want to get to the problem of the heart, God's like, let me do that. The heart of every problem, it's been said, is the problem of the heart. And so Jesus is like, let me deal with the main issue, and that is sin. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the concept of sin is offensive or ludicrous to many. This is because we don't understand what Christians mean by the term. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from God. According to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just doing, is not just the doing of a bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. We can't just think sin is for those people who are doing those bad things out there. No, it's for us who make good things into ultimate things. This plagues everyone's heart, not just people who do really bad things. All of us here have this in our heart to make ourselves God, to pursue ourselves, to worship ourselves, and it can corrupt all of us in every way. And this is the point. He's like, this is why Jesus came. Don't assume that sin affects someone else. It affects everyone in this room, and I have come to take away sins. I'm so thankful for that. That Jesus is like, it's not just forgiveness, but to take it away. There's this idea in the scriptures that I want to just submit to you or introduce to you. Maybe you've heard of this, but Jesus deals with the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Just bear with me for a second. Simple. The penalty of sin, meaning you and I stand before God, we are guilty. But Jesus, because of what he's done, we are no longer guilty. We are now, it's now taid to less side. It's finished. It's done. It's paid for. So the penalty of sin is gone. I've wronged God. You've wronged God. I would stand guilty before him if it wasn't for the person of Jesus saying, I paid for that. So that Jesus dealt with the penalty of sin. The power of sin is this ongoing way that sin affects our lives day to day. Like sin still affects me and affects you. We're still in this body. We still do sin. We're not to make it 
our lifestyle, we'll talk about that in a second, is not something we give ourselves over to, but sin still does affect us. By God's grace, he is still delivering us from the power of sin. So what I love about this, look at the first one, the penalty of sin. You could say that this deals with justification. You are justified, declared righteous before God. The power of sin is sanctification. The sanctification idea that God is still sanctifying us. That daily I need to open up his word and say, Jesus, make me more like you. I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. I need help daily when it comes to the power of sin and being delivered from that. And then the idea of one day is the presence of sin. So you have justification, sanctification, you have glorification. Meaning one day sin won't be present among us. We'll be resurrected, new bodies, new life. The presence of sin, not here. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. And we, now we have this new body, this new heavenly body, in which sin does not affect us the way it will in this world. We're not in a sin-filled, corrupt world. We're in the presence of God, where sin is completely removed. The presence of sin is removed, and that's glorification. So you have, you have uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin. Here's the point. John is saying, Jesus came to take away our sins. And this is how it affects it in every dynamic, in every way. Thank you, Jesus, that one day when we see him, we will be like him, as John says. When we see him, we'll be like him. That's not today. So today, what do we need? Grace. Today, I need grace. You need grace. We are still sinners, but that is not the thing that defines us. It is Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And now, shall I continue to sin that grace may abound in my life? God forbid. Because John says, and I want to read the verse, because this was one of those verses you're like, huh? John says in verse 6, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If that freaks you out, it probably should. I get it. This is what, here's what it's saying. Um, John in 1 John 1, 8 says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. So here's the idea. Of course, we're still going to sin. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. If you're like, well, I just, I've conquered that issue. Sin, that's the old me. No. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. We're still all going to sin. But verse 6 says, but this will not be the thing you give yourself over to. He who practices these things, this will not be your lifestyle. So you're not going to walk hand in hand with God and your pet sin. He's like, no, this is not the thing that defines you. The grace that saves you is the grace that will radically change you and transform you. I want to give you some encouragement. Um, don't assume here by verse 6, if you're reading this going, oh my gosh, is there hope? Absolutely there's hope. Jesus, again, didn't just die for the penalty of your sin, but from the, the power of sin in your day-to-day life. This does not define you. I say, Christians, we cannot like, continue in this anymore. What Charles Spurgeon said about this verse, verse 6, I think is so profound. He says, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Hear that again. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Meaning, if you've truly experienced the grace of God, it will change you. It will change you. You don't have to serve God. You don't have to love God. You don't have to do anything. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, it radically transforms your heart. We go, I want to do, I get to do. I can't believe I get to be a part of this thing called the body of Christ, the church. I can't believe I get to be a part of the kingdom. There, there's something that takes place when grace has captivated you. It will save your soul and change your lifestyle, absolutely. John is saying, do you not understand that this is why he came? He came to remove sin. He came to cast it as far as the east is from the west. So far has God removed your sin from you. You guys, Christmas means that you are forgiven. Christmas means that Jesus paid it all. Jesus' life is defined by his death. His birth is defined by his death. You have to understand that Christmas means I can stand before God forgiven, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus did for me. And this is so freeing. When you stand before God one day, when I stand before God, we are boasting in the finished work of the cross. You better believe it. There's nothing else. It's saying Jesus paid it all. Thank you, God. That I've been justified by your son, that he took away my sins. 
We are really standing and boasting in the finished work of Jesus. Why did Jesus come, you guys? Why did he come? To give you life, to give you forgiveness. Number three is to give you victory. Now, this is an interesting verse, verse eight. It's to give us victory. Let's look at chapter three, verse eight. This is what he says. He says, whoever makes, a pra- uh, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Again, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All right, um, just bear with me for a second. I get it. That is Christmas. Like Josiah, really, your, your second point was sin. Uh, your, your, your third point's the devil. Like, what are you doing? I know. Merry Christmas. That's what we do at the exchange. Um, here's what I love about this. He's like, Jesus has come to dealt with sin and deal with the devil. The things that affect your life day to day. I understand. Listen, I really do understand that many people struggle with the spiritual, the unseen. It's kind of bizarre to me. The, the longer I live, I'm like, uh, to me, of course, of course, there's an unseen un- spiritual realm we don't see. I mean, it makes so much sense to me. It affects so much day to day. I really do think the enemy is a great liar. I think he's done a really good job convincing us that there's not this unseen spiritual realm that affects us. Of course there is. Jesus constantly in his ministry is dealing with the unseen realm. There's no doubt in my mind. There is an, if you guys have noticed, again, in 2023, in the last few years, there is an obsession again with the occult. There's this weird thing going on where we're, we're establishing you know, sacred things to, to Satan in our Capitol buildings and different things. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. There's an obsession right now with the occult in so many different weird ways. And I think people go, no, I, I would never believe in something like that. That's like third world country. They believe in the spiritual realm. I think one of the greatest lies Satan has ever really convinced us of is that he does not exist. I think one of the greatest lies he's ever convinced the church of is he doesn't affect us that much. I, I think you and I have to realize that there is an unseen spiritual realm that Jesus constantly went, went to war with. That has been a battle, a battle from the very beginning. I love how one person said it. He said, if you have no Satan in your worldview, you'll make everyone else out to be a Satan. I think that's the most true thing. If there's no devil in your worldview, no Satan in your worldview, then the person who doesn't think like you or believe like you, they'll become that Satan. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is an unseen spiritual realm. One of my favorite you know, books that C.S. Lewis wrote, it's a common book, you might know it, but it's kind of creepy. It's called Screwtape Letters, right? Screwtape Letters is a fascinating book. It's Screwtape uh, writing basically to a younger demon named Worm- Wormwood, and he's basically saying, hey, um, let me give you advice on really how to tempt your person to tempt the person that you're with, to, to lead them astray. So it's like this older demon giving advice to a younger demon. I know it sounds, again, Merry Christmas. I don't know. All right, but here's what he says. This is so fascinating. So Screwtape says, Wormwood, I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, just suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he can't believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. I think this has been one of the greatest lies Satan has produced over us. To just kind of view it in maybe, I don't know, a comic figure type of way. It's over there in different countries, not here. There is a spiritual realm that when Jesus was on the cross, you better believe. He was seeing that and facing that, and he came to destroy the works of the devil. And I love that's what, that's what John says. John's this old guy going, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil on the cross. Jesus fulfilled Genesis 3 when God said to the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise or crush your head. This is what happens. He destroyed the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? I mean, simply put, Jesus described it in John 8, 44, as simply as lying. Jesus said to Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
I do think that right now the issue that spiritual warfare plays into our day-to-day life is just the lies we live by and the lies we tell ourselves. That we live by certain lives that we maybe, I am this, I am not this. We tell ourselves certain narratives about each other, ourselves, God. I believe Satan's works, you could say, is simply just from the very beginning, did God really say? The, wor- the, the works of the devil is what he did with Eve, just questioning the authority and word of God himself. Maybe God's trying to steal joy. Maybe God's doing this, and the works of the devil is just submitting lie after lie after lie, and we, it's so easy to have those lies feel like truth, look like truth, and then we begin to live by them and identify with them, and he says, Jesus came to destroy that. The reason why I'm spending time on this is Christmas, you could say, is just this violent reminder that God's like, I've come to destroy sin, death, the works of the devil. It's not just this cute baby in a manger. It's that there was a spiritual battle going on for your soul. Right now, there is a battle for your soul to kind of just tune out, not care. There is a battle in Jesus like, I've come to destroy the works of the devil. I care. The thief wants nothing to do but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give life and life more abundantly. You see, why did Jesus come? To give life and life more abundantly. Why did he come? To destroy that great thief, the one who's trying to steal, kill, destroy. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, John said. One of my favorite verses is what Paul writes to end the book of Romans. Paul's writing this amazing, his, I think his best work is Romans. And Paul ends by saying this, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. <laughs> I love Paul. Paul's like, in conclusion, the God of grace, not of war. I love that because this sounds like war. The God of grace will crush Satan under under your feet, the grace of Jesus be with you all. Amen. What an epic ending. I need that. The God of grace will crush Satan. You're not going to always lose. If you think I'm only always going to lose this same battle on repeat. No, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. You are not created to forever lose. You have victory in him. Think about it. He crushed his head. And then Paul is saying, and you too will crush his head. The grace of Jesus be with you all. The only way we crush Satan's head is by the grace of Jesus being with you all. The point of this idea is Jesus destroyed sin and he destroyed the works of the devil through his birth. This is why he appeared, his arrival, him being manifested to make known the visible, the invisible. This is why he came, to destroy the works of the devil. Number four is this, we'll end with this. Why did Jesus come according to John? He used the fourth, he used it again, the word phaneros. He used it again, he says, to bring love. Let's look at First John chapter four, verse seven. We'll read verse seven for context. Here's what John says. 1 John 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us, this is, this is I mean, classic, amazing scripture, by the way. Let's take this heart. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, again, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's a good place to say amen. All right, he was beloved. He starts off with like, hey, you're loved. You're loved, beloved. If you know God, you're gonna love. Why? Because God is love. If you don't love, you don't know God. John tries to make it so clear in 1 John 4, 20. He says, how can you say you love God whom you've not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? He goes, you're a liar. 1 John, that's not me, that's the Bible. He goes, you're a liar. Here's the point. If you, it, what is it? Anyone can love those who love them, Jesus said. It's, it's no big deal. You love those who love you, good job. Even the worst person on earth does that. The worst person on, person on earth loves them, loves the other person who loves them. He goes, but you're going to love those who hate you. You're going to bless those who persecute you. You're going to pray for those who use you. 
The idea for us is anyone can love people who love them. You're going to love the unlovable. How do you know you're a follower of Jesus? Because you love the one person that is hard or difficult to love. You love the person that God loves. You think, oh, that's the only person that a mom could love. Okay, that's, that's what we're invited into. We're invited into this idea that, no, we're going to love the unlovable. Listen, I, I want to make it really clear. John was not always that guy. John was the young guy who was going through Samaria in Luke chapter 9. They rejected Jesus. Maybe remember the story in Luke, Luke 9, 50. And they reject Jesus. And John goes, hey, Jesus, should we just call it on fire from heaven and consume Samaria? Just like Elijah did. He's like, what? <laughs> Jesus is like, uh, don't you know? He's like, I did not come to destroy lives, but to give life. I love John. John's like, Jesus, these people just rejected you. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. Let's just end it right now. <laughs> that was John, the son of thunder, son of Boandrines. That was John. And then towards the end of Jesus' ministry in John 13, when he's laying on his chest, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. What I love about this is John spent time with Jesus and went from the son of thunder to the son of love. And the whole idea is this. Jesus has come to make love known. You will never know love apart from God. He says God is love. He doesn't say God is loving. He does, I want to make sure that he does not say God is loving. He says God is love. This is very significant. God defines love. If you see the phrase love is love, that's just a fallacy. You're explaining love through the word love. It does not work. Love is not love. God is love. The point is God gets to define love, not me or you. I don't get to define love. Love doesn't get to define love. <laughs> doesn't even make sense. You're using the word to explain the word. God is love. If you want to know what love is like, look at God. If you want to know what is love like, how do I even know God loves me? I mean, it's not just these empty verses. It's, it's the whole conclusion of what the New Testament is. I think what Paul puts in Romans 5, 8, he's like, don't you get it? God demonstrated love toward us that while we are still sinners at our worst, Christ died for us. The idea is amazing. He's saying, when you were at your worst, when you were saying, God, I don't like you. I want nothing to do with you. God, to me, you seem vindictive and cruel. Babies are dying. Murders happen everywhere. Why would I ever love this God? God obviously doesn't love us. While you were at that point, God's like, I still love you. While you were giving the middle finger to God, I don't want you, God. God's like, I want you. Even while you're at your worst, even while you're still sinner, Christ, he's saying, don't you realize Christ died for you, not when you're at your best? Like, oh, now you're worthy of my death. No, we were never worthy of his death. It was even when I was at my worst. It is hilarious to think when we give our lives to Jesus, because usually we're like, my life is falling apart, I'm broken, I'm tired, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. God, I give you my life. And he's like, oh, thank you so much for this awesome life you just gave me, this bitter, resentful life. But what I love about that is God's like, yes, I'll take it. That's what I've wanted from the very, you've always been that way. <laughs> Even while you're still a sinner, I died for you. Do you not get it? It was not while you were lovable, I loved you. It was when you're unlovable, I loved you. This is the gospel. Because what, John says, you're going to love. Why? Because God is love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And if you do not love, you do not know God. John is like, I want you to know the appearing or coming arrival of Jesus is that love would be made known. Again, the phrase he, he says it is, in this the love of God was made manifest. In this the love of God was made known among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Why did Jesus come? So that we might live through him. So that we might know love. You are loved whether you feel that or not, you are loved. Whether you know that yet or not, there is a God who says, I gave my best for you. I gave myself for you. There's, I already know the deepest, darkest thoughts of your heart. The things you've done, no one knows about, I know about, and I still love you. That's the God we have. 
while you're at your worst, I gave my son to die for you. Because that's the point. I did not come for the righteous, but for the sick. This is why Jesus came for us, to make love known and make love clear so that we might live through him. We miss the point if you don't catch the end of that verse. We miss the point of Jesus came so that we might live through him. Our way is not working. Can we just look around and agree? It's not working. It's not working in our homes, in universities, in life, in economics, in politics. It's not working in any way possible. He's like, give it up. Your ways for my ways. Your life for my life. I will give you a joy that can complete you and fulfill you that nothing else will. See, I love this. Why did Jesus come? To give life, to give forgiveness, to give victory, to make love known through the person of Jesus. This is why he came. John's an old man reflecting on his friend, his savior, his God, and going, he appeared for these reasons. He manifested. He phaneros. He came for these reasons, to bring life, forgiveness, victory, and love. Thank you, Jesus, for your arrival. Where would we be if this story never happened? We'd just be waiting and waiting for the story to happen. But guess what? It did happen. He came. He arrived. And he offers us these things. Jesus doesn't just give you love. He is love. He doesn't give you life. He is life. He's everything you need. You go to him and you have everything you need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Not the Lord is my shepherd and gives me everything. If I have the shepherd, I have everything. If I have Jesus, I have everything. I have forgiveness. I have victory. I have life. Everything I need is found in Jesus. This is what we are here to celebrate. Christmas is not like, this is so cool. It teaches us some good morals. We should be generous and kind and loving. Yeah, sure, sure. No, but it really exposes you were broken sinners like me, and we all needed Jesus. We all need saving. And it's this message of just saying, um, you could never do it, but Jesus did it for you. Will you receive that? I would say, believe on Jesus, and you'll be saved. Believe on Jesus, the work he's done, and you will be saved. Call upon him right now, and he will save you. Let the story be new to you again. Let the idea that God's like, I will come and take on flesh. I will make myself vulnerable and approachable. I'll be that babe in a manger. I'll go through hell, and I'll literally go and die and experience the wrath of God so that you can have eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for your birth. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross, for the resurrection. This is one of those three kind of things we celebrate as Christians, like his arrival, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his glorification as well. But these are the things we, we have to reorient our hearts around the story. It cannot just be an old story. We have to, tell, I think more than yearly, but we have to remind ourselves that God has come because we were broken and we needed him. And he's brought us everything we need. Amen?